Welcome to another edition of Henry Conversations, the podcast of the Paul Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I am your host, Micah Watson, and I'm delighted to introduce you to my conversation partner today, Nathan Lemer. Nathan currently serves as the Vice President of Public Affairs at Targeted Victory, headquartered in Arlington, Virginia, a public affairs firm that does corporate and political consulting. We'll talk more about his work there in a moment. He's previously served as an aide with someone in the Michigan legislature, whose name you may found familiar, and in Congress, and that name is former Michigan Representative Justin Amash. He now works, at, as I mentioned, at Targeted Victory. Prior to that, he worked at the FCC, where he was the policy advisor for Ajit Pai, former FCC chairman. But all of that is just a setup to let you know he is also a Calvin College alumnus, along with his wife, Amanda, who had the good sense to be a political science major. He graduated in 2009, um, and I should note that we did not cross paths. I came to Calvin about six years after he graduated. But Nathan, I just want to say thank you for letting me twist your arm to get you on this podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for uh, having me and enjoying this cool little podcast in the honor of Paul Henry. I, I love it. Well, and you have a podcast as well, and I want to make sure we get that out there. And, and I, one of the things I appreciate about your podcast is you and your podcast partner refer to the dozens and dozens of listeners that you have. And I think that our podcast here with the Henry Institute is, is similarly situated. So tell us just qu real quickly about your own podcast. Sure. So our podcast is called uh, Reclaiming My Time, and it's me and a longtime friend, Jason Pye, who is currently a, a senior advisor at the Due Process Institute. He does a lot of work in criminal justice reform, and him and I have crossed paths and worked together for years. And we've talked about turning our conversations into recordings. So uh, like every other uh, millennial, we have a podcast. It's like the garage bands of the late 2020s. And uh, we've just been kind of having fun. We had Chairman Ajit Pai on. We look forward to having a couple senators, a couple members of Congress on. So it talks everything on politics, arts, culture, music, sports, kind of whatever we're feeling that day. Well, I'm feeling a little bit of pressure there. Um, but I have listened to a few episodes of this podcast and, and can recommend it. Very entertaining very informative. So Nathan, I, I'm both glad and a bit anxious about having you on this episode, and here's why. So as a professor, I'm supposed to know things. It's kind of my job. And in fact, I think many professors secretly relate to the maxim from Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones, who famously said at one point in the show, that's what I do. I, I drink and I know things. And at least the latter is something I'm supposed to do well, which is to know things. And so as a professor, I feel this not a natural pressure to know things, particularly if I'm going to talk about them in public on a recorded podcast. And I realized a couple things. One, I know very little about the sort of policy work and advocacy that you've been involved in for your career. And two, I recognize it's really important. So those two things together, this is really important. It affects my life in probably lots of ways I don't even realize and that I don't know much about it. And so I realized also I'm probably not alone in that predicament, that there's probably a lot of folks amongst our, among our dozens and dozens of listeners uh, who might feel the same way. And so I thought that having you on the show might be able to take care of both those things, help my own knowledge, and as well as share that with some other folks. So let's start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you went from being a, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed Calvin senior in West Michigan from, I believe, Pennsylvania originally, yes, uh, and then you know an alumnus when you graduated in 2009 to right now you are a vice president uh, at Targeted Victory. Can you fill in the, the gaps between West Michigan and now your work near D.C. and in Virginia? 
Sure. So I graduated from Calvin uh, with a teaching degree uh, in history. I wanted to be a high school history teacher. That was the goal. Um, I had a minor in poli sci. Because my wife, uh, then girlfriend, had all of the books, I was like, oh, this will be easy. I'll just take that. I watched enough West Wing episodes to, to get through some of the courses. So You married well. I did. I did. Uh, and so I graduated with, a, with that degree, and I had no intention of using that as a vocation, maybe to teach, inform my view of government poli- government classes or poli-sci classes with high school kids. But the reality is the Great Recession had changed my direction. And so there was a policy in many state schools in Michigan for uh, last in, first outs. The idea is when you have budget cuts, and they're not going to have a hiring freeze for teachers. They were going to basically let go of the most recently hired. That meant that 22, 23, 24-year-olds, we were kind of out. Uh, it was hard to get a job. And I started reading about it and started getting really interested in kind of the politics and machinations of state education policy. If you remember, this was like the rise of the school choice movement and some other questions about rethinking our education system. And so with that in mind, I decided to meet up with a friend who had a position available. His name was Justin Amash. He had an LA position in the State House of Michigan. This is 2010. I applied and interviewed, and we had a nice conversation at the Starbucks on 28th Street um, in the Beltline. And uh, we got along real well, and he gave me a job. And my job was basically the education legislative aide. I got to meet with teacher unions and I got to meet with a lot of people who did education policy. And I started thinking, oh, I kind of see what's happening behind the scenes. And I'm the young guy who gets to have these conversations. I get to work on the committees and get to learn all this stuff. I have no idea what the heck I'm doing when I explore. And I started just kind of getting into the policy and found that I really like the policy side that allows what happens where, where the teachers are in the classrooms with the students. And that just piqued an interest. And when Justin ran for Congress and then won, I just kind of went with him and found my way in D.C. as a legislative aide, helping very uh, outspoken and exciting member of Congress. And education policy was my main focus, but education policy at the federal level is hard to really kind of, there's not a lot of work to do for member of Congress, especially one who's not on the education committee. So um, I started looking at other issues and I found that I like tech policy, privacy and surveillance specifically, and questions about encryption and patent policy and all these different issues. And so I just started reading up on it, learning a lot about it. And this is 2011, 2012, 2013, Edward Snowden revelations come out in 2013. And that actually, that experience there allowed me to meet people outside the Hill and third party land and in the think tank space and the academic space and the grassroots advocacy space. And I basically took the opportunity and uh, went to another think tank, a, a grassroots group called Generation Opportunity and helped start their tech policy platform. Loved it. And it was neat because tech policy is outside of a few issues is actually very bipartisan. Hmm. Not a left versus right. It's actually generally an issue that you need tech libertarians on one side and tech libertarians on the other side and some people in between to kind of build your views. So whether it was the SOPA issue of 2011 or the NSA surveillance fights of of 2013 and beyond, this kind of bipartisan coalition was fun to work in. So I went from there, went to the think tank at R Street. And then Chairman Pai heard about me when he became chairman. Someone passed my resume and said, Nathan, you do a lot of work at the center of leading coalitions. That was like what I've been doing is leading these coalitions of people to accomplish whatever the task was to do. So I do a little bit of writing, do a lot of organizing, do a lot of um, coordination among the groups. And it's kind of like the general manager putting the pieces into play so the coach and the players can then 
play on the field. And I like doing that. And so Chairman Pai hired me, did that for a few years, got to be a little bit more partisan on some issues at the SEC. <laughs> but um, in tech policy and telecom is naturally bipartisan. So outside of a few spats, I get along with most people on the other side of the aisle. And after three years, the chairman's office had an opportunity to work in the private sector. And, and so I took it and I'm basically doing a lot of the same work, but for corporate clients instead of just one member of Congress or one you know principal at the SEC. Thanks for that. And for all of you Calvin students or Calvin parents, notice there the many different jobs uh, that have been available with that Calvin education. So for folks who may not be familiar with what the FCC does, I mean, we've, we hear that term and, and every once in a while, like you mentioned, there's a flare up of an issue that might get some press. On the basic level, what does the FCC do? You have to tell a little bit what, what you did, but what is the, the basic idea of what the FCC does? Yeah. So the FCC for years was a backwater independent agency that very few people paid attention to. Basically what they did was they regulated an allocated spectrum that that was basically federally owned spectrum waves that then they allocate to different partners, whether it's FM radio, AM radio, network TV, that sort of thing. And then for a long time, like it wasn't that controversial. In fact, the reason it became important in the first place was Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ, when he was a congressman, realized that he could manipulate this agency to help him and his wife get some, you know, radio uh, stations in Texas, the 50s, and his wife could own it. They can make a profit off it. He was able to use his kind of political connections. There's a lot of cool stories from the 50s and 60s of members of Congress basically using this entity to do questionable things. They really changed the way that works over the past years. There's been a lot more scrutiny and a lot more conversations, but basically there are five members. They're appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, three of the majority party controlled by the president, and then two of the opposite party. And they, when you think about how much we use spectrum and we in our everyday lives, everything from your Bluetooth device, which has an FCC logo that means it's approved by the FCC, to your car garage door opener, to internet access, all these things go through the FCC. And it actually is about one fifth of the entire economy. The FCC has its fingers in, in some way, shape or form. And again, a way more ethical approach to this than we had back in the thirties, forties and fifties. But uh, there's a lot of new standardization about how they can do rulemakings and procedures. And unlike other agencies, which are directed by the president. So if the president says department of education, when you do X, they just do it. The FCC is independent, so we can't be told what to do by a president. So it's up to the chairman, under advice from Congress and other entities, to make decisions for themselves and to establish uh, open uh, procedures for rulemakings, that sort of thing. And when you start thinking about the conversations we have in tech policy right now, a lot of them kind of go back to this really interesting question the FCC has been trying to solve. What are the gatekeepers of our technology, whether it's your spectrum waves for radio, TV, um, uh, satellite access, or to questions about internet access. Who should be the gatekeepers, private or public entities that control what you see or don't see online? How should questions about consumer protection be fixed and adjudicated? How should we allocate these resources in a way to allow the private sector to use these tools for, for good and also raise questions about, let's say, DOD is using some spectrum for something. How do you make sure they're using it appropriately versus uh, Verizon using it for 5G? So this may seem like a strange question. I just taught last semester a class on constitutional law, or at least it's called American Constitutional Foundations. And one of the things we go into is that the, the federal government is a government of enumerated powers, that unless right. the Constitution lays out what it's supposed to do, it's not supposed to do it. So we think about Article 1, Section 8, it's right there, uh, the 
federal government can operate a post office, and, and it does. But, you know, it's not just intuitive to think that there's these radio waves out there and there's this Internet and there's these mediums of, of transportation of ideas. I, I know mm-hmm. you have better, better words for it. Why a, a federal communication commission? Like, wh- why does the federal government own or how do you guys do you, and, and whether someone's on the libertarian side or the libertarian side or somewhere in between, how would you... Um, defend or articulate why the federal government has the monopoly on how these different media are divvied up? It's a great question. So, and again, it was much less controversial in some ways back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and earlier age where there's huge swaths of what you call spectrum or basically the fallow fields that you can build communications networks on. And so there's all these different ways you can use these technologies. And back in the day, we didn't catch up with the science and innovation to catch up with how you could use these in all these different ways. So if you look at a spectrum map now versus back in the day, it used to be really open. There was not many different channels, but now there's all these different people using these different limited resources. And I think the the general idea is that this is inherently interstate commerce. Communications networks are inherently going across state lines and state boundaries. And I think also you have this other question about our protocols and our rules of the road have to fit into concert with other countries like Canada or European nations or Asian countries, et cetera. So how do you establish these rules of the road going forward? And one of the main concerns that we constantly run up against is what you see the balkanization of communications networks, whether it's the internet, whether it's different TV networks or radio networks. If you have someone operating their own protocol radio system, that could interfere with 911 operators. That could interfere with public safety operators. You know, if you're running your TV, uh, how could that interfere with everyone else's, you know, bleeding onto the screens or the static? You remember, your students wouldn't know this, but the static that you see uh, whenever we had bunny ears on our, on our TV. Right. So there has to be a, a rules of the road for that. So when you, when you think about um, uh, these different networks and how do you govern the rules of the road, if you establish like different states have different patchwork of, of rules, it could be extremely confusing using convoluted and actually hurt consumer protection uh, on the long run. So this is why the, there is a governing approach to, to this uh, FCC. Is this why I have to turn off my cell phone when landing or when I'm in an airplane? Is that those sorts of um, questions? Yeah, it's all those type of questions. I mean, I, that's kind of a left overture from like the early 2000s when there was an actual fear about bleeding in the networks. But like every device you use, your phone, radar, GPS, they all use different portions of spectrum and it's all along this big band. And if you're using low uh, uh, speed, mid, mid range bands or, or, or high bands, it, it's all used different types. And so you have to make sure that we're using the correct usage to, to use different technology. And I think the big question now is, you know, whether you think about 5G technology or next generation Wi-Fi, you know, establishing the rules of the road really can allow us to use that technology. Yeah, so many questions popping. I mean, it sounds a little bit like um, it's the force, right? And, and a few of us are more attuned to the force. Um, so you guys are really the, the Jedi Knights then of, uh, of American communications. Um, is it true that you and the chairman saved the internet while you were there? Um, is it true that the internet loads up things more quickly than one word at a time? Tell us a little bit about uh, about that fear. And, um, and maybe this is where it got a little bit more partisan. I don't know. But uh, did you did you guys save the internet? It depends on who you ask. So I believe you're talking about net neutrality, uh, which is the biggest thing we're probably known for under the Obama era FCC. They established net neutrality rules through Title II, which treated all 
ISPs, internet providers as a public utility. Therefore, they could be open to a whole new set of regulations, rate regulation, ways of how they can deploy access. There's actually this question about whether you get Disney Plus if you sign up for Verizon anymore or HBO Max if you sign up for AT&T, or is that like unfair treatment of data? Um, and so we actually undid Title II, net neutrality, and the world still existed. The internet still exists. There was all these fears about internet loading one word at a time. There's all these questions about whether companies could block your access to information or throttle how you see the world or essentially kick you off the internet. Um, we've not seen that. I think that while some of the hyperbole involved, and while I, I support my boss's decision, obviously oppose the kind of call for net neutrality, otherwise I wouldn't have done this. I do actually think that there's a really interesting question about how people view internet gatekeepers over the past 15, 20 years. And if you can imagine, if you teleport back to 2005, 2006, you see the rise of companies like AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, back then uh, T-Mobile, now T-Mobile Sprint, whatever. Um, you know, these questions about like, oh, could they use their market share to like kick off Netflix or kick off Facebook or or exert a charge from Google for every search term or whatever it is. And we just didn't see that happen. But we have seen this bigger question, I think, come up about what the power of gatekeepers to show what's online. What is free speech online? What does it look like? Who can sell a book on Amazon? Who cannot sell a book on Amazon? You know, what activity is acceptable, what activity is not? And so I think actually a lot of the fears that people had, which I totally understand, are actually in some ways foreshadowing these larger debates that we're having about whether it's big tech, platforms, internet providers, internet uh, infrastructure companies or cloud companies or app stores, you know, who controls what you see or don't see on the internet? What should the rules of the road be governing that? So net neutrality in some ways was like a small slice of what I think is a much larger conversation that, um, you know, I think people on both sides of the aisle, many concerned Americans and others are trying to think through. Yeah, well, you you mentioned deplatforming and you mentioned gatekeeping and there's this gatekeeping of the actual access to the internet, right? And there's this gatekeeping of what can get sold. And you know, I want to ask you a little bit about my friend, Ryan Anderson wrote a book a couple of years ago uh, when Harry became Sally, um, rather a cheeky title, but about a pretty serious subject um, about the trans movements and, and questioning at least some of the conventional wisdom about that controversy. Um, and about the people who are very involved on a personal level with with those issues, um, more than issues, of course. Um, and it's been in the news quite a bit recently. Amazon, I think, controls something like 80% of the book market in the United States. And their reasoning was that this was a sort of a harmful book and that they had every right not to sell it. Um, and I, at one point, thought, well, it's a private company. They can do what they like. And, and then more recently, I've been wondering about that a little bit, given how structurally huge it is and what it does mean for a chilling effect on any author who might want to address something controversial, whether it be from the left or the right. I found this rather, rather troubling, not just because it's, you know, a friend of mine in his book, he's actually sold a lot more books because of the controversy. Um, and uh, I'm sure on that level is doing quite well, but help me think through this. Am I right to be concerned about Amazon being able to do this? Should I chalk that up that that's just the free market at work? Or is this close to a monopoly sort of situation? What's your take on all that? 
I'm always careful to throw out the word monopoly. I, I think that we don't always have the clear articulation of what antitrust policy should or should not be because, you know, we only hear about robber barons or things from the late 1920s or Upton Sinclair, but we actually haven't thought through about why the certain standards we have actually enabled us to, to grow and be profitable and be successful. I mean, we could have concerns about Amazon, but also they deliver our food really effectively and they deliver our books and all these other things that are great that are, so this consumer welfare standard question that we've always operated about how you think about antitrust and the power of various companies, whether they're terrestrial companies or internet companies. Companies. And so I do think that we should be careful with labeling things monopoly or not monopoly. But I do think you, you raise a really interesting question, which is that at what point of what we call the internet stack, whether it's at the platform, sort of the consumer focus or the user um, access point or the infrastructure level that undergirds the internet or the input side or the internet provider side of the last mile question between the internet provider giving you access. So who controls all that and where should the rules of the road go? Also, who has access to your data? Like, does Amazon get to use right. that and sell it to someone else? All these are really convoluted, tough questions, but I do think it's tricky for us as as consumers or public policy people to jump out and say, well, the First Amendment says that a private company can do whatever they want. Yes, the First Amendment is about governments being able to go basically not not censoring your your, your information. But we've also had this like incredible, we almost like we've forgotten the fact that Hollywood had blacklists. It was not because of government. That was because they decided to say people who were too socialistic or too close with communist China or communist Russia at the time, leanings, they should not be allowed to have their ideas pre presented. And so I do think that like we should be really careful about saying the whole, oh, it's just a private company going to do what they want because it's actually establishing free speech norms. Right. That can change the way we talk about things. And whenever Chick-fil-A says certain people, uh, they have a fundraiser, let's say, and it's on Facebook and then it gets deplatformed because, you know, someone's like, oh, Chick-fil-A has this certain stance on sexuality or gender policy or whatever it is. That's a really interesting question. I'm like, wait a second. Could that be down the road for churches? Could that have ramifications for um, racial minorities? Could that have the ramifications for um, you know other religions and, and, and whatnot? And so I think that it's it's a really tricky question. And I do think that there is a space for writers and activists and influencers, I think Ryan Anderson being one of them, to say, wait a second. Why are you doing this to me? What are the rules undergirding this? Why can I get uh, my come for the or the anarchist handbook, which allows me to like figure out how to like make bombs and stuff? How can I get that online, but not this? And I do think that's like part of this larger conversation that we're seeing and the proliferation of things like Substack and other platforms, uh, uh, Parler and others that people are trying to share their perspectives, whether it's on the left or the right or heterodox, um, you know, trying to share their perspective in a way that um, the platforms, the current platforms may not may not like. Yeah, I guess, you know, the, the free market idea is, well, there be some other group that will come in and take up the slack and do something innovative and entrepreneurial, and maybe that will be part of the answer. My own kind of thinking for a long time, I'd be, I'd be reluctant for the Senator Hawley type approach where we might think about leaning on a company. Um, and I guess that's what I've been rethinking to the extent that a company as big as Amazon or some of these other big tech companies does rely on certain policies that they can get to favorite because they have the lobbying power to do so. It's just complicated that for me. So I appreciate you helped me thinking through that a little bit. You know, you mentioned earlier the 5G thing, and I wanted to ask you a question about that. Uh, I think, in, and in a couple earlier podcasts I've discussed with guests, that we are in something of an epistemological crisis in our country. And what I mean by that is just that people diverge deeply as to what counts as true and what counts as a good mm -hmm. source. And in my own little 
neighborhood Facebook group here in Grand Rapids, I've had neighbors of mine try and rally their neighbors to to oppose these 5G towers because of this, that, and the other health concerns. And I, I don't want to poo-poo health concerns, but some of the sources that they would point to struck me as a little bit, uh, I just, I would just say not as reliable as they might be, I would put it that way. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, about that with, with the advance of tech? It seems like 5G is a pretty remarkable technology. It's going to open up a lot of doors for people and really maybe democratize some of the, the internet. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you see as promising about that? And maybe if you, if you have anything you'd like to, to touch on with this, this idea of how do we, in a pluralistic democratic society, where we're going to disagree. How do we talk about what's true and what's not given, I think, a, a rise of conspiracy theories in the last couple of years? Great question. Um, I'm very excited about 5G. It's not a panacea. It's one use of technology to open up platforms and applications that can radically change the way we do everything from agriculture to healthcare, precision surgeries from like a doctor that's performing it on you thousands of miles away because of the 5G technology, you know that the surgery is going to be 100% accurate. Or for example, uh, best use of, of conservation protocols to help uh, farmers get the best out of their crops while also being cognizant of real concerns about climate change and, and mitigating uh, for sustainability. These are awesome things. Education, AR, VR, augmented reality to help history teachers make history come alive for students or an appreciation for art or math or whatever. Um, that's really exciting. And I, I get very pumped about this. And, and um, you know, we spent years traveling the country I was at the FCC, you know, explaining why this is exciting, not just for large companies, but also for smaller companies and entrepreneurs and others. And it's also an interesting uh, way of counteracting the, the brain drain we see in the Midwest in so many ways where not just California or Austin, Texas can be Silicon Valley, but it can be anywhere. It could be Youngstown, Ohio. It can be Cleveland. It can be Grand Rapids, Michigan. It can be Kansas, whatever. And I, that's exciting to me. So I, I think that's an incredible opportunity. With that said, there are a lot of misunderstandings and and conspiracy theories about 5G. Some people thought it like caused COVID. Some people think it causes autism. Some people are saying it could change the way your brain looks or like, you know, reshape your head. None of that is based on science. Um, none of it's based on any sort of real research. And I remember meeting with uh, a number of engineers and in, in the team that have been tasked with coordinating with um, HHS and CDC and other entities in the FCC to talk about cell phone safety and 5G technology. And I saw this really interesting point, and I think you get at truth here, is there's no evidence of it causing cancer or something like that. But there are ways in which the way you use a cell phone or the way that you use your laptop could have other health effects that we haven't evaluated. Like what's the posture of your of your neck if you're staring at your phone long term? How will that affect this next generation of kids? But that's not a question for 5G or radiation or some sort of spectrum question. That's a question for doctors. And that's a question for um, parents to establish protocols for how when their kids could use their phone or how long they can use it. The other question of like the screen, there's always questions about the screens, about whether the lighting is too bright that could affect your eyesight. Well, there are ways you can mitigate that by dimming it. Um, my wife always reminds me when I'm playing chess online in bed that, hey, Nathan, just turn <laughs> down the dimmer so that we can all sleep and then you can finish your chess game. Chess.com is a great website. My rating is not good, but I like playing all the time. Um, but like uh, those are type of things that we can do to mitigate those concerns. I think also the other thing is about our behavior online. This goes right to your misinformation. Is Are we using social media to make ourselves feel better and get 
our two cents out, or are we using it to really engage and learn from one another? And some platforms are better at that than others. I noticed in recent days, particularly um, anytime there's a news story that's like current events, uh, usually tragic uh, events, people try to insert their pre-existing narrative into the coverage of, of a story. And that shapes the way that they talk about something. So if you are nervous about technological innovation, then why not blame 5G for causing cancer? Why sure. not blame Bill Gates for this with COVID or something like that? Instead of looking at what is actually happening and learning and engaging from those who disagree with you to find out what is the truth that that's going on. Yeah. Thanks for that. I, and I, I did take from that. Do I, am I right in thinking that you think parents should have some limits on their kids' screen times that you're on that side of the fence then? Completely, completely agree. And I also think that companies need to do a better job of working with parents to put stricter structures around their platforms to get the best for what's useful for a kid. It may be good for my kid to watch YouTube to watch like videos like my son Ephraim is obsessed with sea turtle videos. But I am kind of curious about what commercials play in between the you know what ads or if I'm on Instagram, sometimes my search is like bizarre what pops up and I'm like, should this be around? Facebook is actually unveiling a new version of Instagram that's for kids under a certain age because they know for a fact that's a real problem, like what kids are seeing or what they're exposed to. So I do think those are questions that every parent should be having with their church, with their school, uh, with their local institutions to think what's best for them and their families. Sure. So you described a number of, of great sounding things with 5G, um, and it is remarkable to see just how much things have changed since I was a kid. My grandfather told me a story when in 1906, he and his friends ran out into the streets of their small Wisconsin town and they pointed and they shouted, look, no horses, no horses. Um, and what they were describing is seeing the first car that they'd ever seen. And that, that was the term they had for it. And I, I think my generation, I'm uh, Gen X and uh, we'll be the ones who could remember before the internet and that'll be, be as strange for us. What does worry you about tech things? What concerns you? There's a number of incredible things and I, I agree with those, but I also have some friends who are quite concerned. I'd just be curious, what are some things that keep you up a little bit at night with regards to the darker side of, of tech innovation? You know, I, I think the, the first and foremost is a I'm going to very, very uh, meta here, but actually I think it's the disconnect between generations about how they can use technology and what it's useful for. And I think it kind of comes at the root cause of a lot of the debates and fights we have on social media and questions about platforms is that certain people feel left behind by these technological innovations. And that creates fear and concern um, about where the direction of this country is going or the direction of, of, of our engagements with each other or, or the way we connect as a family. And I think others, generally younger people, jump all in and they judge people who don't as Luddites or boomers. Um, and I think that there has to be a way for those generations to to find um, common ground. So I'll get to an example of how I tried doing that with my own dad in, in a minute. But, you know, other real questions. Look, the United States has a set of, you know, for all our flaws, we actually have created a really great fertile ground for innovation and creation and, 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 and job opportunities out of technology policy. But we are also ceding the ground, unfortunately, to other nations 
who don't have the same concerns about the Fourth Amendment protections, free speech, or at least debating free speech. You know, we're watching what happens in, in Hong Kong and China, where a lot of innovations on artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies are happening without the oversights that we have. And what concerns me is that those protocols could set the standard by which we engage on some of these technological innovations. And I do think Western countries, particularly those of, uh, of the United States or United Kingdom and others, we've established some rules of the road and guidance that can help make sure we're not using spy technology to be a backdoor for for things that we have problems. I mean, that's why the Edward Snowden thing was such a big deal, because we saw there was a question of overreach. We had a national debate about it, whereas in other countries, that's not the case. And so I do think that we need to um, be careful of, of those things. I'm more I'm really growing concerned about our, our lack of innovating to the next generation of tech beyond 5G or, or other applications of it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so you're a Calvin alum, and you've remained involved with your alma mater, and you've you visited uh, here in Grand Rapids. You've visited our students who are doing a D.C. semester. And as you know, and our listeners know, uh, higher education and Christian higher education in particular is in something of a difficult season these days. You know, if you think about your, your alma mater, what do you think Calvin has going for it? Um, and what do you think, what ideas do you have for things that uh, Calvin can do to to set ourselves apart and uh, and tell the story of what we're doing here, maybe to new audiences and 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 thrive moving forward. Well, the first thing that you guys are doing wonderful is the incredible professors um, there. Uh, <laughs> you know, particularly in the poli sci department, those working at the Henry Institute. Um, yes, very good. Thank you. I, I actually mean that, um, you know, when I was in college, I had a tendency, I'm very heterodox, I'm very kind of libertarian leaning and like to question everything and come across as overly cynical. And, and I think sometimes there's a know-it-all, particularly when I was younger. And I think that sort of attitude hindered my ability at the time to fully appreciate everything that I was being exposed to. Instead of having to show that I was right or that I knew the answers to, it made me less appreciative at the time to the advice that mentors and advisors and professors were giving. And so what's been fun for me is over the past couple of years in my own sanctification as I've gotten older is fully appreciating, I may have disagreed with this professor or that professor, but they're doing some really interesting things. And I should be careful with how I respond to what I see on social media, or if I see an article or a press release or a tweet to jump to conclusions about what that says about that professor or, or that member of, of the community. You know, I remember when I worked for Justin Amash, before Justin was cool, like there became a moment during the Trump era where he became kind of cool to be a Justin Amash fan at Calvin College. But right. between 2011 and 2016, he was a pariah because he never got anything done. He was always against the Republican Party. He was always against, you know, mainstream politics. Who cares about Fourth Amendment protections? He should be endorsing this or that. And I remember like feeling like it's my job to defend him. I'm an ambassador for Justin. I'm going to defend him against these professors or these Calvin people who don't see what I see, how great he is. They'll figure it out one day. They did. But well, it took him standing up against uh, President exactly. Trump, I think, exactly. did, did the work for exactly. quite a few of, of my, my colleagues. Yeah. But my point about that is that I made it personal. I made it personal okay. to defend it for myself. I defend him because he they're attacking me by attacking him instead mm. of appreciating for the the perspectives that they were sharing and instead of appreciating what they were engaging. And that's something that I um, really have learned to appreciate is that I, I now have conversations with those guys all the time. I'm DMing with them nonstop, you know, learning from them. And, and I think it's important that we don't close each other off when we disagree to find those areas that you can collaborate or respectfully disagree and not make it like about ad hominem attacks. 
I did not know you were going to say that in advance. It's not like, you know, we kind of check these things out um, ahead of time, but I, I can't imagine actually a, a more apropos articulation of what I hope this podcast is able to to foster and what I hope my own teaching in my own posture is in, in, in interacting with folks that I agree with and disagree with. So I appreciate that. I'm glad that that... Um... And if I could jump in on that, I mean, there's been conversations in the past couple of weeks uh, about some news at Calvin College about, you know, kind of cultural fights, to be frank. And how do you share your perspective, whether you're in favor of one team or the other team? And how do you engage in discernment? And, you know, I, I don't have much comments on uh, the protests or the counter protests or the tabling, that sort of thing. And this is a very meta Calvin thing to say. But I did enjoy the fact that people were using chimes a news outlet to engage in the discussion, to to use that as a framing for the discourse. And one thing I liked about Calvin is some of these debates are reminiscent of the debates we had 15, 20 years ago when I right. was there. It's not too dissimilar than it was 15 years ago. You know, it's a different topic. It's a different group. It's a different question about who's in power and who's powerless and question about social justice and everything else, equal rights. We need to find more venues for that. And that's, I think, what Calvin needs to, I would encourage Calvin to find new venues to do that. I jokingly told you that I would hire the first kid that started a Substack and shared a, a heterodox view. I actually mean that. Like, I think that we need to find ways to not just use the Calvin chimes or the, you know, established platform for engagement, but finding new platforms and new ways of fostering that dialogue, not just name calling or ad hominem attacks, but actually having a bigger discussion about this happening on Calvin's campus. What are the ramifications beyond that for us as Christians, us as agents of renewal, us as students, and how can that help us in our worldview as we get into our vocations, particularly in politics? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So we're we're talking on the 22nd of March, um, and just for our listeners who may not be uh, really tied in closely to Calvin, there's been a a pretty lively discussion recently about human sexuality on campus, um, and, and people of goodwill who will come down on different sides on that and different ways of even how to approach it. So yeah, I think that's a very important conversation. I'm glad Calvin can host it. I think we can we can do even better on how we talk about it. That's a, that's a given, and a lot of um, hurt feelings here and there, uh, which sometimes is unavoidable, but sometimes I think can be avoided. Um, well, let's touch on something that for you, I know, is a deeply held concern, and that is that that Calvin should have a Division One basketball team. I'm, I'm surprised that didn't come up during the bio that you feel so uh, <laughs> ardently about this issue. So this is, now, yeah, you were an actual athlete, like you are still an athlete, but you were an athlete in college. You played at what school? I played at UC Davis uh, in the great golden state of California. Did you really? What, what, what division NCAA was that when you were playing against John Wooden's team? <laughs> I am uh, older, thank you, but not quite old enough to be in the John Wooden uh, era. Uh, UC Davis was Division Two at that time. It is now Division One. Um, so I was a uh, a Division Two basketball did you, player. Did you get to play any like D1 schools or any of the big schools, even in a scrimmage or anything like that? Uh, we played Oklahoma State when they were number eight in the country in Oklahoma and got stomped. Now you've got me reminiscing, uh, you got me uh, monologuing, you sly dog. Uh, in high school, I played Jason Kidd three or four times, who had a pretty good career. So yeah, we played a few teams like that. We were the, you know, the, the Division One teams will often pay a right. program to come and get stomped, um, and uh, and we fought valiantly in those games, but we typically you know, we typically got stopped. So it started off kind of as a joke. It started a few years ago when Providence College, which has less students than Calvin, I think they have 2000 students, like 
won a couple games and they had a really good run in, 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 in the March Madness. And and it started in a joke about like, oh, you know, it would be kind of fun if like more. I also like a huge affinity to Christian schools or Catholic schools that do well. And I'm a big Villanova fan, as you can see. Um, Loyola, I get excited because they have Calvin Colors. I think it's neat that they do well. <laughs> you know, when, when Liberty played, you know, almost won a game. I don't have a big fan of Liberty, but I was like, yeah, the Protestants were doing it. Um, you know, and also it plays into the when I went to Calvin, uh, I was one of the co-founders of the Calvin College Rugby Association. Um, oh. And so we, because club is on a separate track versus D1, D2, D3, we got to play big schools. Our first big game was against Notre Dame. I got to wow. go to Notre Dame and play on their field. We got trashed 63 to 12. But I had like a 40-yard run and I had a couple passes. I had a goal-saving tackle. I had all these moments that I'll just remember for the rest of my career. And as an alumni, because Calvin continues to play Ohio State, Michigan, Bowling Green, um, what you would call as big D1 schools, I always appreciate that. I always can say in my, I can grow up and tell my kids, I got to play at Notre Dame. I got to play at Ohio State. I got to play at Michigan. And that's always been a big part of me. And so part of my connection is that I would love to see, I know it's not probably possible the way that economics work and the way the school works but like i just think it'd be fun like i get excited every year from march to watch the different schools that pop out the mid-majors and the small christian schools and the fall catholic schools and so it's always like my thing about how if we really want to redeem creation and like take on the best we should go play d1 basketball i mean no yeah. offense to alma no offense to hope let's just like you know run the tables and see what happens now i know it's never going to happen i get it but I'm just going to keep on pushing it every year. And I keep on, because I'm a public affairs specialist and like we deal with all these kind of coalition buildings. I like the idea that there's a threat that I could somehow develop a coalition of like well-moneyed, like Dutch people who get together, like we're going to be D one or bust. It's never going to happen. But like, I just like the idea of like hanging out over the heads of people being like, Oh, he, he actually could do this, you know, <laughs> with, with man, this is impossible. <laughs> right. Uh, so I, I went to UC Davis. I, um, I went to Baylor and then spent some time at Princeton. There was a year a few years ago, and I taught at Villanova for a year when all those schools were in the tournament. Yeah. So who knows, you know, Calvin might, if that magic continues, maybe Calvin uh, could end up there. So if any of our, you know, alumni listeners or friends of Calvin listeners, if you're looking to network with someone to bring Division One basketball, uh, Nathan Lemer is, is the person to connect with. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time. I wanted to ask you one more question, if that's all right. Uh, I wanted to ask about how your work in life intersects with these big sectors of modern life. I think politics, business, tech, and these sectors are kind of happening. Life moves fast. They deal with huge personalities and power and sectors where people of faith can perhaps be challenged at times with their identities as people of faith and sometimes the demands or the temptations perhaps of these different jobs. Can you talk a little bit about how all the things you've been involved in, what you, your mission in life, your career, and 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 the successes you've had thus far, and what you'd like to see in the future. How, how does all that interact with your faith? How does your faith ground you through your life experience, through thinking about the future? As a good Calvin alum, that's something I would love to hear you, you talk a little bit about, and I think some of our listeners too. No, that's a great question. Um, I think the the important thing that that I come away with the conversations in political discourse that I'm a part of, in the associations I'm a part of, or church, or or other ways that I'm engaged is how do I 
take that semblance of that concept of like redeeming creation. I mean that, like, how do how do I actually, you know, tr- think of myself as an ambassador for Christ in these conversations? And, you know, th- how do I take it to the next level to, to make sure that I am moving from my vantage point, the ball forward for a way that encompasses more of these ideas, both in the left and the right. How can I be a vector for people who, who think differently than me, be a place that we can still um, collaborate and engage and discern together the questions that, that are ahead of us. And, you know, I've joined I'm a board member of a group called Center for Christian Civics that hosts Bible studies and online trainings for churches and institutions to think about how we can debate and discuss current political ideas and questions in a civic way, in a gracious way, in a way that isn't about name calling and ad hominem attacks. It's been a huge thing that I've been part of recently. I've been very proud of our work. We're in the midst of, of an online Bible study that's like Wednesdays, and we're chatting with, with people who are all across the country dealing with their own issues and how their church is handling questions about Christian nationalism. What is it? How do they go with it? What does it mean for our politics discourse? And I, any opportunity to find people who are engaged in that, I, I'm into it. There's another person, Aaron Wren, who runs a website called The Masculinist and is a blog and, and a podcast he does. I do work with him. And he's starting a group called American Reformer that's actually kind of developing a network of reformed Christians to like think creatively about how men particularly should be engaged in politics and policy and cultural conversations and how do we think critically and so always just to find networking opportunities like that to help people in that way or how i can be a resource and the other one and something i was going to say earlier and i'll bring up now is i try to use new a new tech as soon as i can and and take advantage of it and see if there's a angle here that works for me or not and if and if it's not for me or or for someone else i share it with my other christian friends to do tech policy and get them to write about it um erlc the ethics and religious liberty commission their uh their scholar jason thacker is a phenomenal christian tech ethicist who's writing a lot about this stuff and so him and i chat all the time and he's right pushing out stuff about about these questions about tech and faith and finding more guys like him or david french or other people who are engaged in these conversations how do I, how do I help them amplify what they're working on? But I was going to say uh, Clubhouse. I use Clubhouse all the time, this new audio-based app. And uh, it's neat because it's like basically social media, except you're talking, which means you can't be a keyboard warrior. You have to engage. You really have to like discuss in a gracious way. And you can't just name call. You can't just try to own someone or have the biggest take because you have to defend it because it's audio-based and anyone can challenge you. And so I've been trying to find out ways that churches could use this. How could we use this for other things that are not political or not you know, controversial? So my dad, for example, is an autism researcher and professional who works with adults with autism. And so I'm like, how can I get my dad on Clubhouse, which I did, and put him on Clubhouse and have like an AMA with people who can ask him questions about kids with autism or what it's like to to work in this space or things like that that could actually help people solve real problems in their own lives so i think that's i think the challenge that that i'm I'm trying to find a way to do in an imperfect way but you know how can we find new ways to to do that as christians and you know people in this space well nathan i think anyone listening to our conversation can't accuse us of not touching on a number of different things and i hope it's been it's i've loved talking to you and and I'll, i'll enjoy listening to this i hope others will too um, you know, one of the things that Calvin, we we have our our language, um, which includes agents of renewal. We uh, aspire to educate and equip students to become agents of renewal. And I wasn't part of that. You know, I wasn't here when you were here. But I am so glad to be able to showcase our conversation and and your work because um, I think you're an example of what we hope Calvin folks will go out and do. So thank you for your thoughtfulness and for your time. Um, I look forward to chatting again. Maybe next time we can debate Philadelphia or Los Angeles sports or uh, which one's more excellent. Uh, But uh, thank you for joining me for Henry Conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for joining us for another Henry Conversation. My guest today has been Nathan Lemer, Vice President at Targeted Victory and proud graduate of Ben Calvin College. Speaking of graduates of Calvin, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Sam Tuitt, a recent proud graduate of Calvin University. Sam has been a sounding board figuratively and an outstanding sound engineer literally as we have started up this Henry Conversations experiment. Thank you, Sam, for your invaluable help and blessings to you as you start this next chapter in your life. I hope you've enjoyed our five Henry Conversations. If so, please do subscribe and look for us to continue the experiment in the fall of 2021. I'm Micah Watson on behalf of the Paul Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics. Blessings for your summer, and I hope you'll join us again in the fall.